0: Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. I am, of course, biased, but Total Football Analysis provides the best tactical and analytical pieces out there. Our team of amazing writers work hard to bring you a different type of content than you'll find anywhere else in the world. While we look at the big five leagues in Europe, TFA brings our subscribers and readers analysis pieces from all four corners of the globe. From the UEFA Champions League to the MLS, from the A-League to the Copa Libertadores, TFA has it all, with our analysts going from strength to strength every single week. I can personally say from my own experience of being with TFA for two years now already that I've improved exponentially in terms of my writing and how I look at the beautiful game. One of the main things that have helped me to constantly develop over the years is reading the work of some of our other incredibly talented analysts. Unfortunately, sometimes our analysts are so good that they eventually move on to work for professional clubs in both the men's and women's game. One of these former TFA analysts is David Cellini. Having left us in the beginning of 2020, David has done ridiculously well for himself, working as an assistant coach for IF Sylvia in Sweden's Tour Division before making a bold jump to the Elfsborg with newly promoted IFK Varnamo under the tutelage of Kim Helberg. So far, Varnamo have been impressive, keeping themselves just above the relegation zone despite having the smallest budget in Sweden's top flight. Coach Scott Martin has a superb piece on the TFA website analyzing Varnimal's tactical setup and if you haven't read it already you have to check it out after this podcast however it's one thing reading about Varnamo's tactics from an outside perspective it's another to hear from someone who was responsible for making it happen. With that being said I'm delighted to be joined by David Salini today the assistant coach of Varnamo as we discuss his coaching development, philosophy, inspirations, a host of new tactical terms and much much more. David, how are you keeping?
1: Doing really well. Uh, we had uh, obviously a big win at the weekend. So that was uh, the sort of uh, sort of result and, and also like performance and overall experience that that really puts a spring in the step going into the new week. And then we had a good week of, week of training now and preparing for you, Gordon, which is going to be a, a really tough
0: one. But uh, we're looking forward to that. Well, firstly, congratulations on the win. It was a, a fantastic victory for you against such a difficult side. his team played some lovely football. They're obviously, I think, their fourth the minute in the And You did a Twitter thread after the game. You kind of explained the game plan. You went into detail, which it, which, for one, I loved. I also DM'd you on Twitter saying, I love how open you guys are about sharing things like that, which are almost really secretive in, in the professional game. You went into detail in the thread about your Attacking about the attacking and defensive phases in the game, the different shapes you used. How much work went in behind the scenes for that match solely?
1: Well, just first of all, with the, with the Twitter thing, like we, uh, both me and Kim, have coached at very low levels of the game, and and uh, I think it's difficult to to get good content in terms of what like really the really top coaches do, and and uh, at, the, at the big clubs, and normally you get a little video over a rondo or something and it's not no detail there's no thinking why they do certain things you just see something and then uh, it's all like you said it's all very secretive all the time so we just want to help inspire people at times so if we can share something that that some people will enjoy watching and, and just getting some sort of insight into to how we do things and maybe something they can bring to their own environments that's that's uh that's a great uh great thing we can we can uh, just help out fellow coaches with uh in terms of the game and, and the planning i think uh our style of football is extremely uh, concept and principle driven. So we uh, work on, oh, ever since January when when we came here, we've tried to establish a certain way of playing, more in in terms of what we want to do when we have the ball, that we want to take the ball forward with control. As quickly as possible, if that means going from our box to the opposite box in three passes, but all all of those three passes we control, then then that's perfect. Like the goal we scored against i4 from a goal kick, where we just, I think it's two passes we're in behind them, and and then we square the ball for a, for a tap in. That that's perfect. So those sort of ideas and same with how we press the ball, how we can't depress all these things has been a work in progress, and uh, it's it's like uh, I would say it's very, it's a it's a process that's always living if that makes sense it's it's always changing and we do something in one game and then we feel like we could have done this better and then we might tweak and and adapt to the next game so in terms of of how we played against Hamabi, we just pick a certain structure basically by how will they press us then we will position ourselves in these positions because positioning is key for us and then the positioning for us is very much dependent on how the opponent will will try and defend against us because we believe uh the different defensive systems of the opponents we face will open up different spaces for us to attack really uh so so that's basically just then putting the players in those positions but then still using the same principles the same ideas when we have the ball that we use in in the game before so the i i think it's it's a lot of planning like always working with this this identity of how we want our team to look on the pitch but it's not that much planning in terms of the specific game that we have to do. We we'll tell the players what they will encounter because we think that's very important. They they see a few clips of the opponent and uh, we put them in the positions uh, that that they will be in in the game, but that might just be done you know, visually in terms of a keynote presentation. And then maybe if we do something really different, we might practice that specifically on the pitch the day before a game. But for this game, it was just, it was just uh, this is how we're gonna press them. This is how we're gonna try and build up. And if
0: that doesn't work, and they press like this, then we will use this system instead. Do you uh, yeah, so do you like do you have a plan B and plan C then? Because what if you are expecting say Hammervid to set up in a certain formation and they come out with a whole different system they haven't used before, not system structure sorry that they haven't used before. How you know quickly can your players adapt to that kind of change? Like do you go to them straight away before the game and say, look we we got this part wrong. We're actually gonna set up in this shape, and we need you to be here and here. Is that is that daunting for the players when they step out onto the pitch? Because it's almost a reversal of what you've told them during training or just mm-hmm. before the game. So how do you kind of how do you deal with that kind of a situation?
1: Yeah, I think one one key uh, element for us that we use uh, we use eleven v eleven a lot. And since our play is very flexible in terms of positioning, in terms of how we press, uh, if we press with three in the first line, if we press with two, if we press with one, like th- those sort of things we use 11v11 11 11 to challenge the players to solve these sort of situations on the pitch. So uh, we have one day uh, where we play as, it's like a, it's our take on Bielsa's murder ball. Uh, so we play, uh, it's a, it's two sessions in one day and the idea is that we will use at least uh, around 60 minutes of, of uh, net playing time. So the ball should be in play for 60 minutes at least because that's normally what a game is for us in our Uh, And then sometimes we play 70 minutes and sometimes 65. That doesn't really matter. It depends on, like today was 30 degrees Celsius. So then we just play 60 minutes. But maybe if it's colder, we might play 70 minutes because that places different demands on the players. Uh, And then we might just start with, say, one structure we've used a lot is building with with basically three center backs and uh, one number six. And then we might use three tens in front and two wide players and stuff like that. And then the team facing that sort of build-up team will have to press them according to our ideas and how we do that when we when we play against three centre backs. And then obviously the attacking team, if they're being pressed well and struggle to build out, they will have to change to find a a solution against the press. So then, then it will it becomes like a competition between the two teams in our own training session, and the intensity is high because the ball keeps getting into play and we play very short interval maybe three minutes and and the kim will be in the our head coach will be in the middle of the pitch just starting balls and it will be counter attacks all, all the time and and stuff like that so we they will they will be uh, ready in terms of being used to facing different systems by doing it in training but then when it comes to the game it's very difficult to change for us during the game by us telling them what to do because uh, when we played against Humberby, it's Twenty-three thousand, and they're singing non-stop and the atmosphere is fantastic so it's difficult to even talk to the players closest to the line uh so then we use we try and get messages across to some players so we have uh maybe one center back who's very good at understanding how they press us and then he will know that if they press with two strikers we will have some sort of idea how we want to beat that press uh, so then he might help with that, and maybe in the pressing sense, maybe we have one of our 10s or one of our wingers who are very good at at understanding what we need, how we need to press the team. So we have sort of coach player coaches on the pitch that can help mm-hmm. with that. But but mostly it's about having prepared them. So against Hamabi, we had a plan to to build with two centre backs and two uh, sixes. Uh, one of them being being a, a guy who played centre back when we had the ball, so we call it a free centre back because he steps up uh And places a six, and then two fullbacks who were quite deep because we uh we wanted to be ready for their center midfielders breaking out the press so from a four one four one uh and then we felt that was a good structure for us to start with, and then we had a an option to change so in front of those six players, we then had two tens and two like split strikers, and then we felt that if we needed m- more help by by dealing with those midfielders breaking out the press, we could change them and use a two three uh sort of build up shape and then push our fullbacks slightly higher above their wingers to sort of pin them uh, and then use only one ten and and two space strikers so we had those two those two um structures ready and then when it came to it on the pitch we quickly saw that we're gonna probably need those three like three sixes if if you will to help build out because they they were pretty good at pressing and then when we got into those positions we were really good but it was difficult to get that message across some maybe we spent too long in the first structure Mm -hmm. so that's the sort of issue that can arise on game day but but the players deserve a lot of credit by in terms of how good they are at adapting to the tactical instructions and since they do it every day and and we talk a lot lot about in terms of attacking play being active to play being active with your positioning and being active by reading the game and what where the spaces are so they should be well prepared uh from training but then of course they might need a little bit
0: of help on like the precise structure we need Mm -hmm. to use you spoke there about the free centre back, which I think is a a wonderful concept. And you talked about how he moved up into midfield. And when watching the game, it was very noticeable, especially in the deeper areas of the pitch that he was doing that. He was stepping into that second line. And I know Jose Mourinho used it with, I think it was Roderick Baez or could have been Cumbula for Roma last season when they played a tree. Whereas some coaches, when they have the wide centre half, so the wide centre back, sorry, will push one out to the wide area almost as a fullback, then the wing back bombs on. What do you think of the 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 benefits of pushing them into the midfield, and what kind of skill set do they have to have? Because I imagine you, they need to be very comfortable on the ball. Would be one, you know, maybe they scan a lot, check their shoulder, things like that. What kind of skill set would you would they need to have?
1: Well, I, I think as you said, they need to be very good on the ball because it's a big difference playing as a as a normal centre back with everything in front of you, and then having to deal with then all of a sudden you have players around you, uh, so you have to be good at scanning. You have to. We we uh, we want to put them into the best positions possible for us to play, but that means that the players need to be able to, to play like that, and that's why we only use certain players to do this. And uh, the the player you reference now, Victor Larsson, is fantastic at at, uh, at basically using the ball and and understanding which spaces he can play in. So you would have seen in that game him sometimes dropping. So he he was supposed to play as a six, but then sometimes he drops in as a third center back also and Mm -hmm. he defends as a center back but sometimes he drops in as a center back sometimes he he drops out quite wide if that's needed if they that depends on how they press us and sometimes he plays in that those central positions in midfield and the benefit for us is that uh it's it's more difficult i think to deal with a player pushing into a space rather than dropping into a space because if you start from a position and drop it's easy it's easier to follow with a defender, with a defensive player. Whereas if you are playing as, uh, say, a narrow winger pressing a back three, and then one of the center backs moves into midfield, it sort of changes the dynamic for how most teams defend. Because you are used to when you defend, you have normally the ball in front of you. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this player will just run away from that position and come into midfield, and that changes. And then for us to be interchangeable in the positions he can take up, uh, will hopefully make it difficult to press us, and that like uh, the main is i when i talk about this i need really to to use like one of the principles we talk about that's called follow pressure so uh it's like it's almost like a reverse marking scheme if that makes sense so when opponents try and press us they do that because they want to create an advantage for that team. team. they want to win the ball or or like make it difficult for us to play So we want to use this principle of following pressure as a weapon to create an advantage against their attempt at creating an advantage for for that team. So in this case with with Victor Larsson, if a midfielder breaks out to press one of our two centre-backs, we need him to be ready to maybe follow with the midfielder, play really close to him, follow him all the way up, and then maybe move out to the side to to create a passing line so he can get the ball, and then he has created a lot of space to play Because if he follows the defender out of the space, then that space that the defender vacates, we call it breakout space, is a space we then can use to turn and play. And if maybe maybe their sixth then follows him, then that there's a massive space for our tens to play. So it's about it's about creating advantages against the opponent's attempts at creating a, advantages against us. And then following pressure becomes key. And, and that's that's why you see him popping up in different positions, because he's basing his positioning on what the opponent does. And that's why it's really difficult for us to prepare the players in how we believe the opponent will play. And we have certain, like, if we play for, against a team that plays a normal solo 4-for-2, most of our players know which spaces they need to occupy. Uh, and those spaces change all the time. So we don't really talk much about, like, we don't talk much about half spaces or uh, wide spaces or... Uh, or a third of the pitch we talk like for us all the positioning is always based on where the opponent defends because that gives us the space we can play in. Uh, so that's why you see him or other players like our fullbacks why they move maybe higher because then they may dip, like base their positioning on the winger and if the winger would press then you would see our fullback following the winger all the way to get the ball on the outside and then you have a lot of space to turn into and play which makes it difficult for the fullback to break out and, and press and if the fullback then breaks out against our right back for example then you have a big space to run into with a 10 or a or a winger or a striker so so uh, that's basically the thinking behind it and and uh, in terms of the free center back concept it's just something we uh, i i joined sylvia last season uh, mm-hmm. as a division one club as a as an assistant coach and they used this when i came like the team already used this idea that, that they played a back three when they defended and then when when uh, they won the ball, one of the, the central center back would step up into midfield. Uh, and the way we've used it is that sometimes it's central centre-back, sometimes it's a it's a, one of the wider centre-backs. It doesn't really matter. When, when we played a sherping away, we used five a back five when low, and that back five turned into a two-three structure in attack when we tried to build out. So we call that the fluid back five just by using a defensive players and still having five attacking players ahead of them. So it's just about being... As difficult to play against as possible I think.
0: So was that a concept you obviously you saw at Sylvia but was that a concept that you went to Kim with and said I think this would be good for the system or was that something he was already thinking about because I I do think he was also manager of Sylvia as well a few seasons about three years ago. Yeah and he
1: uh, I think he might have already used himself when he had that team because it was a specific player doing this Uh, we have him in, in the squad now as well he's almost two meters tall and and uh, can play centre-back, can play midfield and is a very good footballer so uh, he's someone we get a lot of benefit when he's playing low around our box uh, and then he can move into midfield with the ball and uh, same thing with this Victor Bauschen guy, he's very mobile so he's a different type of centre-back but he can do the same thing and he's very good in midfield as well. Uh, So I think the I've seen Ajax do it and like Julian Timber moves up in midfield a lot as well so there are other teams doing it, it's not not something new I think but it's just something we use to, to try and create advantages in certain games in other games we play a normal normal yep. number six just uh, based on on how we feel will help us win the game
0: when you're in training is this all done kind of like I'm, I'm not a big fan of the term but is this all done almost like muscle memory or is it the players have to have serious tactical intelligence to know when what positions to be on the field of, you know in what game situation uh, I would say we use
1: like I uh, did. Uh, I almost finished my degree at at the university to be a teacher. Uh, I, I have uh, I think nine weeks left before I, before I took this job, so I haven't completed it. But uh, I, I would say that the way we structure training is based on what you would in in like grammar teaching called the situational approach. So you would put players into situations that might happen in the game, uh, and I think for us it's about creating exercises and like maybe you've seen it i share a lot of exercises as well where we where we have certain possession games with rules that might benefit us in a game and and it's all like we all always use these principles like following pressure we talk a lot about playing on the third man we use uh, like playing uh, what do you call it in and out combinations or out to in combinations like those sort of ideas are always prevalent in the in the practices but then the, the design of the practice will help the players do these things almost implicitly we might tell them explicitly but but they should at this moment now i don't need to tell them to follow pressure because they they will do it anyway uh, because they see the benefits of, of that approach so we've started using more and more uh, i think over time here using mannequins in possession games for example because uh, when we play like the normal uh, possession game, many teams do is the four v four plus three, uh, like neutral players to play with the team in possession, and and uh, like that's a drill we might use. But but we've gone away from just having the rectangular space, and then now we move. We might cut corners like many teams do to create diagonal passing and and forcing the players to to create good position to play the ball for because you re- you reduce the space they play in, and then we add mannequins, so we might take away the simple passes along the sides because when you have a numerical advantage it's easy to just play around the defensive team but if we put mannequins on the sides that if you hit the mannequin you lose the ball then that option is removed so you might have to go into the center where it's congested and then you need to be good at sort of things these sort of ideas that that we're talking about now Uh, and then for us it's just how much can we help the players and how much can we prepare them for what will happen in games because we might have a plan on on how how we will press us but then they might do something completely different and still in the moment of the game the tactics doesn't really matter uh, they don't really matter when when it's a 1v1 one one battle between you and the winger then if you play a back 4 or a back 5 it doesn't really matter you have to make sure you beat that player in terms of creating space for yourself to take the ball forward or or you know in terms of defensive aspect like you winning that that duel so we try and create those scenarios in training and And uh, I really enjoy using these sort of mannequins. Like they are, they force you to be so active all the time. So if you use that, the exit 44 plus three, you have a plus three advantage when you have the ball. But if we put eight mannequins in the game that are static, but if you hit them, you lose the ball, then it's more difficult to play as the attacking team. You have to be so active to move and support the play all the time. And and, uh, I think it's really beneficial and something I would really recommend if
0: that's the sort of ideas you would you would want to use in in the football your team play. You spoke there about preparing your team for the next opponent. I think you said as well at the start of the podcast you have your garden coming up who are I think the top mm-hmm. of the top of the league at the minute, they're doing incredibly well this season. I'd imagine that obviously a side like Man City and Liverpool wouldn't have to if they come up against a lesser opposition, wouldn't wouldn't have to change their training approach that much to suit the opponent. However, with the fullest respect to VAR you're obviously going to have to punch up a lot this season and in the hopes of of staying in the division. How much do you guys plan for the opposition on a weekly basis considering that there will be a lot of punching up to try and take points off these bigger sides and these better sides in the league?
1: In terms of training, uh, very little. Uh, It might be that if we know that we are going to play that we are going to play against the team pressing with two strikers and we are we want to work on certain concepts in in our attacking play then we will try and structure exercises where we might play against two strikers. so that might be just a small 4v2 uh like box drill where you try and transfer the ball to a different box but then if there's two strikers pressing we're not talking about aik we use two strikers or used against us but Implicitly, the players will play against two strikers because we know that we might come up against that, but we don't talk about that. Uh, but it's it's that that might be one thing we do, and doesn't really have to be because they might change and press with three players. So then it doesn't really matter. So we focus on ourselves, and then in the final days before the game, so we have we always train the day before the game, and that day we uh, like give us brief a brief. Uh, Analysis of, of the opponent to the players and, and which which attacking uh, structures we think will be important and against that particular opponent and which uh, defensive approach we will take um, and then it's just for us to to show the players that and if we feel that it's something we really really need to to work on for example if we when we played uh, against Vardberg a very direct side we knew that it's going to be a lot of of aerial battles for our uh, centre backs so then we might take away the back four and and uh, maybe a defensive midfielder to work on that aspect of the game because we feel that will happen in the game and we have to familiarize the players with that thing that might be important for us getting a good result so that's where the in terms of training where it comes in the, this is going to happen tomorrow so we need to practice it and and they help the players familiarize themselves with the ideas uh, for that particular match but in terms of, of all of the rest of the week's training we would just try and improve our, our own style as much as possible because we feel over time uh, if we can get better every day at playing the style of football we want to be we want to um, we want to play really then uh, we have to work on that and we don't set teams up to play when we play 11v11 11 11, it's always Wernhermö against Vanamo. it's never Wernhermö against Hammarby uh, it's always us competing against each other because we, we believe and this is what Kim the idea he came in with that no player should ever have to if i'm a backup right back i should never have to be the right back of a different team i'm still a vanimo right back because if i do really well then i will be a, a first team right back uh, so everyone should always feel that they are they are within a shout to play and that they have uh, every chance to practice their ability to become a vanimo player rather than
0: than just an opponent for us yeah and who's involved in the opposition analysis process at Burnham? Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'd imagine yourself and Kim very much are. And then I wanted to know how much of that are you feeding through to the players? I ask this question to almost every coach that comes on, but I'm I'm always interested in the different answers because some coaches will tell you they will do quite a lot of analysis before the game with the players, and then others will say it's really brief. Like you said, it was it's quite brief, but how brief?
1: Yeah, uh, I think I think the only people really working with it is me or me and kim uh so we are the only full-time employees in terms of the football side actual technical stuff uh so we we do the analysis and and we prepare the the meeting and we like obviously we prepare some sort of game plan and kim will make decisions on how exactly we will play and and uh, which players are are starting and that sort of thing Um, but the the messages we give the players we we have video every day just Analysis is a massive part of what we do. So we record all the sessions. We show them clips of things we do really well and things we want to just repeat for them. That this is important for us and this is really good that you do it in training. And then we might show them pictures of of uh, them doing it in in a game as well. Uh, so we we tend to use the former game or the previous game throughout the week in analysis sessions. So we might look at the high pressing on the Monday and then on the Tuesday we look at the way we defended low and then on the Wednesday we look at the build up play and on the Thursday we might look at how we. Attack the box, for example, and then we are all, say we are off the Friday, and we then train again on the Saturday, and then we show maybe uh three clips of you Gordon's attacking play, how they build from the back, how they uh something that we've noted maybe they are really good at getting into the assist zones, for example, and this is gonna be important for us to stop that then we show them that just maybe three clips, maybe thirty seconds of of actual live footage, and then Kim will go into showing them. Like how we are going to stop it in terms of maybe using a keynote presentation with some slides. Like this is important. We are going to use this defensive system. We are going to do this, and we might he might move them the the images around, and maybe this this can happen. This can happen, and we can solve that in that way and and in this way. Uh, And then on the day before the game, we will just repeat the messages that this is going to be important, and then we show them again how we are going to play. Uh, So it's very much focusing on us, but just keeping in mind what the opponent does because that also brings some some sort of conditions for the way we plan and, and
0: prepare. About three or four years ago, Total Football Analysis released a, an article, and this is actually before I even joined. I remember reading it, I think it was two years before I joined, about how different analysts analyze matches. And you, of course, were in there. And I read that recently and I took a snippet over just to see which what you spoke about. And you said you break the game up into... 15-minute segments is that still the case do you still do that because actually the quote i have here is i spend the first 15 minutes looking at how both teams attack how they defend collectively and how they attack in both transitions defensive attack and vice versa do you still do that do you still break up in the 15-minute segments or has your methodology changed a bit i think i think i probably changed
1: uh i don't remember that i, I remember it now when you <laughs> say that but i didn't remember when you when you first brought that. up but that's true yeah uh I think uh, that was more like when I analyzed teams for TFA. Mm-hmm. I think now we look at footage from from maybe four or five games. Uh, very rarely do we watch the entire match. Uh, usually, I prefer watching the first half because that's yeah. where you see normally how teams plan and prepare. And then if they change something in the second half, then if they believe that was really good, they might use it in the next game. So I would see it anyway in the first half. Uh, so I tend to look at that, and now we have access to a system, uh, Spideo, is it called? They record the entire pitch, so you see all the plays at all times, so that's really helpful. Uh, and then it's, if you see the same sort of patterns in three of the five games, then you know that's probably something they're they trying mm. at achieving. And then we have we have all sorts of statistical tools as well that we could use. We don't really do it. It's more like we, we look at uh, basically the, how do they press? And it Does that differ, like based on the teams they play against, and that's why we use more than one game? Uh, how do they build from the back? Like, what sort of structure do they take? What sort of positions are important for them, and and how can we press that? And then we might look at the goals they scored. Do they score a lot from from cutbacks? Do they score a lot from from uh, crosses from the sideline? Like, do they score a lot from set pieces? That sort of thing. Uh, so it's I, I think we spend a lot of time analyzing teams because we watch more than one game, but then what we filter through to the players is, is extremely extremely brief uh and i think a massive part of the way we have like i would say we've had some success in the way we we performed because our performance are good uh we are we are still above the the relegation playoff by by five points so we're doing well in, in in that sense. I I think we should have done a lot better in terms of, of points because we are in all metrics. I think we are between seventh or tenth, uh, but we are thirteenth. So it's uh, it's a bit bit of a drop there. But so performance have been good, and I think the key to that is that we focus on ourselves all the time, and we we bring the opponent in. But you will see no difference in how we approach a game at at Hamaby or at home to Degerfors. We we will try and play our style, press them high uh, for as long as possible. We will try and, and build from the back and go with control to the opponent box as many times as possible to create good chances to score goals. and, and we will always try and counter press and and uh, use aggressive counter marking, which is basically what we call the the rest defense of our team, which when we normally mark opponents rather than than having a positional uh, a positional focus on on our rest defense. So we call it counter marking. That's that's those are the sort of uh, sort of ideas that that are important to us and then uh, we just uh, try and try and create conditions to play like that in every game and that means we change the structure we change certain players that suit different approaches and and uh, I think that's the key for for us hopefully continuing doing reasonably well and maybe getting even more points that that we will still be our team rather than focusing too much on on Hammaby then of course when we play them we are we know that they are brilliant on the ball and phenomenal at breaking through team so if we cannot press them high we will in this game have to drop low and maybe we have to defend low for 4 minutes but we cannot let them get into our team and then if the ball goes back to the goalkeeper then we will take every chance we have to be to go and press them high again uh but we might make
0: slight alterations how we approach it but but the overarching ideas will always be the same i am fascinated when you said about how much you guys do analyze the opposition and then how kind of little you feed through to the players and it does make sense but I always love, a, I think Marcelo Bielsa gives a seminar where he speaks about anxiety and he says he, they do so much preparation for the games, the coaches themselves and him, because he has anxiety. He needs to know everything. He doesn't say it to the players because you can't fill their heads with all that information, of course. They have to focus on their own game too. But yeah, he, he always speaks about anxiety and how anxious he is. He needs to know absolutely everything, set pieces, defense and attack, You know, build up, middle third, final third, everything. I wanted to ask you though about reading now i know this seems like a peculiar (laughs) way to start a question but how important was reading to your coaching development from a, a tactical and technical perspective because i know from my my own experience i've done some coaching licenses in in the republic of ireland which are ridiculously expensive i didn't learn nearly as much as i did from using resources online like reading blogs even TFA articles, Twitter threads, as as you put up, for for someone looking to expand their knowledge of the game, to look at it more analytically, what advice would you give them? I would say that you need to, you obviously need to
1: watch football, uh, but then it's difficult. I think it's difficult if you are not used to doing it. That if you, if I, someone who's not normally analysing games, then just turns up to watch Ajax uh they might see how ix play but it might be beneficial to have some sort of background knowledge as well so if you mm-hmm. can read a few pieces that this is something maybe maybe you wrote something adam and then uh okay this this guy brought up uh these aspects of their game and then can i see that or do i see something different then you're that's when you really start analyzing so i think in terms of of, of reading articles and and um and seeing anal- uh, you know analysis videos and stuff like that. I think that's massive. I, I uh, came across a lot of things when I was starting out. We started, uh, me and my friends started a blog back in 2014 from where I then went on to. to on the show, as well. uh, yeah, run the yeah, show,
0: Yeah, well Yeah, run the show. It's excellent. I, I loved it. I, I really do. Yeah. I, I actually, I read a piece only this morning from it um, because we, me and you were speaking on Twitter and I'll talk about it a bit, about Count, count American. And you have a whole yeah. section and a piece from it. And I loved it. It was fantastic. And we anyway, started.
1: Yeah. No, anyway, uh, so, so I think it's it's big because I like certain ideas that, not really ideas, but like terms from from the game. Like I had never heard of half spaces before. I wrote, I read that Spielverlagerung article. That's like you know the spaces on the pitch because like i like when I played, I I often tried and played in those spaces because it's yeah. a it's a really good space. But then when when you you read about it and you get terms and stuff like that's really beneficial for them. You being able to maybe transfer your ideas and thinking to players because if you terminology terminology I think is really important because if you can get some sort of common language within the team, uh, I think it's massive uh, so so if you don't have have the words to communicate you you will struggle and if you can if there are certain terms that, that other people use and maybe are really important and, or important but more like universal uh, it might help you. More like more quickly get those messages across the players. So I, I think reading and and uh, seeing what other people think and how other people like that's what I try and do when I share things. Like how do we think? Is that something that could inspire you in the way you coach and or or someone else? And how do you, do you train? And like why why would you use mannequins in certain game in certain drills? And then maybe someone will think, oh, maybe that's a that's a good idea. I will use it. Or someone would think that's a terrible idea uh i will i will do it in this way instead but then you're also you're also thinking about you're thinking about football and you're thinking about your your own work in an analytical way so i think it's a it's a huge credit to to all the people who put stuff out and and tfa obviously have, have come on a massive journey i think since since uh, we started uh, cuz i was part of starting in that back in was it 2018 i think mm-hmm. uh with those first pieces so so it's a credit to everyone who shares and I think it's a credit to people who read and, and try and, and better their own knowledge every day. That can only help you
0: going forward. When I read articles on coaching or tactics or tactical analysis, sorry, the language can be quite heavy. There are obviously certain websites, certain people use quite heavy language and I enjoy it. I, I Myself, I, I love learning new tactical terms. But when you're obviously on the pitch with the players, I'd imagine maybe it's a little bit different. How simple do you have to be with the language we use and the way you phrase things? I spoke to Jonas Oideval, the Arsenal women's manager, a few weeks back, and he said, when he's talking to his players, it's very, very simple. He talks to them, you know, he doesn't use too many complex terms because he doesn't want them to get too, you know, gummed up with information. But everyone's different, players learn differently. Do you use complex terms or or, or do you kind of keep the 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 tactical jargon to a to a limit.
1: I, I think you would see that throughout my time, like even when I was writing uh, I don't know, tactical analysis articles or or tactical theory or whatever it was, my language is very everyday. I I, I obviously place uh, importance on the way I communicate and I think it's uh, I don't wanna sound like I'm like I'm uh, you know, linguistically hindered in some way when when I write, uh, but I think it's important to just be as clear and, and concise as possible. So, if, like if you use the term uh, countermarking, or like the the that's, that's I don't think that's a it's not a complex word in any way. But if I use that, I have to explain that in a piece, uh, and and I try and explain that in in a way that if you have never played football, you should understand my explanation. Like I, I think that's that's just a basic way that I like to communicate, and it's the same with players. So, and and a challenge we have now or had, especially when we started the season, is we have obviously a massive group of Swedish-speaking players. They all speak English. Uh, we have certain players that speak English as a first uh, or second language, uh, and then we have two. Now we have three Brazilian players, where one of them, he. He doesn't really understand english or swedish so so he can speak portuguese basically and spanish <laughs> um so we've tried to find words that can be used for all these languages so if i have four central defenders and all of them speak swedish there's no point in me speaking english if i'm only working with them yeah but i will use the same sort of word so a, a very simple one is is counter-pressing. We Maybe it was being too inclusive, but we we've termed it contrapress. Uh, so basically the same thing, but it's a bit more Latin. It's a bit more <laughs> Swedish. It's a bit more Swedish as well. So we tried to train a, create a term that was quite clear for everyone. So so we we call it contrapress. So if I'm speaking with the Swedish players, I will still still say contrapress. Uh, if I'm speaking with the the Brazilian guy who only speaks Portuguese, I will try in in a very in a very mixed sort of latin because i i speak very little italian and very little spanish and then almost no portuguese but you know i try and he like these players that that speak uh, portuguese we had two from the beginning of the season now we have one they appreciate you trying because they want to understand they want to they want to learn so so it's a mix of all those languages but then these terms that can be universal for our team like contrapress then that becomes a word we use. So then it's easy for everyone to understand. And that's just we don't we don't like the Swedish term is is very different, and it's I think it's it's a pretty bad one because it's a long it's two words and they're quite long, so it takes time to say, whereas contrapress is very easy to say, mm-hmm. like three syllables, it's very, very simple. Uh, so then it's about using language that is comprehendable, uh, comprehensible, and it's uh, and it's you know it goes quick on the pitch. Uh, it, it's easy, easy to, for the players to grasp what I'm saying and, and it's easy for for me or Kim or any of the other coaches to get the messages across quickly and some some terms we use for everyone are in Swedish because that's just we had them in Swedish and then uh, the players will just have to understand that okay this is a Swedish word, I still understand what it means even though I don't speak Swedish but the word is, I understand the word. So yeah. it's about making it as simple as possible and and often as say as little as possible but with as much with as much uh, information within those few words you might use
0: there are a few tactical concepts and the meanings behind them that i want to go through with you because i read your twitter thread, which is again as i said at the start of the podcast is absolutely fantastic but there were some terms you used that i had to research and one of them was counter and what i found was so when i was coaching i would use that i didn't have a term for it though so I, I loved reading it and finding out that I, I was I was using counter-marking but I didn't have a term for it so we would go say if it was a corner they have two centre-forwards up we leave the, tr- the back three and we'd be very aggressive on them keep tight even if they drop you go with them very tight and again I didn't have a name for it so counter-marking was something I learned today another one I wanted to ask you about though was dynamic width and for me dynamic width would maybe be positional rotations out wide but again I could, I could be bluffing It could be completely wrong what is your like what what does dynamic width mean to you uh i think it's spot on I, I think it's
1: when i when i played uh we were always told that we should make the pitch as big as possible at all times so you because you create space was the mm-hmm. the idea and, and I, I know some people work like that and you put players on the touchline on both sides because that uh, apparently stretches the opponent, and I don't really see it like that because I, I think switching the play to a player who's maybe thirty meters away from a, a left back, for example, it takes so much time for the ball to travel, so they can get across, and I don't, don't really see the advantage. So for us, uh we use more that we the width of our team is based on the width of the opponent's defensive structure. O- often, maybe in some in one game we will say you have to be really wide because that's important for us, then we may, might change, but normally it's it's like that. So if as an example if we we normally use only one player like really wide and more, the other player central so say we have our fullbacks playing playing uh outside the opponent's uh winger like we take a four for two to make it simple so it's a four for two we play our right pick is playing uh wide and he's playing outside uh, outside of the left winger and the left back of the of the opponent and then we can adjust which height they play on do they play close to the wing or the close close to the fullback that's a different that's a different dynamic but then that player might in a different like he's he's responsible for the width of the team but maybe it's better for him based on this following pressure concept to drop towards the center back and come narrow to open up the space for someone else to follow the if if the winger would then press the right back who's come narrow then someone else might need to follow pressure into that space that has been vacated and then the wide player might be a 10 dropping out or it might be a center midfielder Uh, so basically dynamic width is that you don't really at at certain points you don't have a fixed wide presence it might be left unoccupied and then you drop into that space rather than standing in it so rather than having a static presence in wide areas the width is provided dynamically by different players, so it could be like rotations. Could also be that we have no player at all wide. We had a, we actually scored a goal against Hamabi at home, where our right back is is uh, coming in very narrow, and uh, and their left winger I think is is orientated against him. So we have no player. I think our widest player is, is inside their shape. Uh, and then we have a centre midfielder and a ten who could drop out to that space. The right back could move out into that space, and then it becomes this dynamic, the, na- the dynamic nature of it. And if the ball goes from right to left, then our right back, who was wide, will maybe come inside to be in a good position to counter press when we lose the ball, because he will be in counter marking against the left winger of the opponent. So it's it's uh, it's very it's very flexible, and the positioning is is always changing based on what the opponent does. And then maybe. Maybe the width will be provided by different players and that's the dynamic nature of it, that it changes.
0: What are the the, the
1: disadvantages with that? Obviously, it could be if you. I think if you drop too late, say our, uh, the right picker was wide, he's coming inside. So we need maybe a, a 10 to drop out in that space to, to give us some sort of option to play outside the, the pressing players. Uh, if you start too high with that player, it's easy to be followed by a left back, for example, mm-hmm. to come into that space. So then you you get wrongly turned when you get the ball and you will have to play the ball backwards, and maybe you will be stuck because the team will the opponent will push players towards that side where the ball is. Uh so that's a disadvantage, I think, that if you do it late too late, you might not reap any rewards of that sort of approach. Whereas if you if you start close to the player who will go and press and you drop out into that space when it's big you could A get the ball yourself but then if you drop out and someone follows then you might open up a central space for someone else to to come into and then you might not even have to go wide because you will just drag people away from the center to open up big space in front of the back four like we do for that goal for example where we play up to a 10 back to a 6 and he will then uh, play the ball in behind and we have a one-on-one with the goalkeeper um so those are sort of the the pros and cons and then as i said at some game in some games it will be only one player providing with so then he will just play wide all the time but he will base his his width will be dependent on the width of the opponent's defensive structure he will always be outside but if they move 30 meters to the other side he will follow 30 meters because he that we believe that allows us to play a more a quicker game is more connected and we want the short passes to to get players to press and open up these breakout space that i that i mentioned earlier
0: before i move on to press and i want to ask you just briefly about say the, the four main phases of the game so if you have your your in possession out of possession your two transitions then defensive attack how important is it to be good in all four or not maybe good maybe good as a, a redundant term excellent per se because Watching Barnsley, it's very obvious that you got at the weekend. You scored two counter attack goals that were fantastic, but you can all. You're also very good in possession, out of possession. I thought, obviously, there were some great chances for Hammerby. but for the most part, especially in the first half, I thought they were really good in the low block. That five four one, it was excellent at the denying space. How important is it to be very astute in all four of those phases, excluding set pieces? I just want to talk about the kind of mm. the main, mm. the main four. Uh, I, I think it's massive.
1: And I think uh, we spoke a little bit before we started recording that we are a very small club, and I and I think our players have come on an incredible journey. So I've only been here this season, but the club won Division One, so the Swedish League One, you could say, back in 2020, and then last season they won Superettan at the first uh, attempt, and now we are in Alstanskan. So it, the club has been on a on a rise that has been so quick that it's that the same players that play in Division 1 are now playing in al It's a massive difference. Like, they have done extremely well, but it's still a massive difference. So we feel that it's our job to make sure that we are tactically good in all phases of the game. Then it's obviously a very subjective idea of what's being good in certain phases, but we we do our best to try and be as good based on how we want to play, uh, obviously. And, and uh, then it's about the players picking up that tactical information and then executing everything on the pitch so it still comes back to the players but but uh, for us it's massive because we have to be able to defend low because we will end up low in every game at some point because that's like every team will do that uh Hamabi had a lot of the play on our half in this game but they still had to defend low when in especially in the first half when we were really good on the ball because then we pushed them deep and they struggled to to press us based on how good we were at adapting our positions to the way they pressed, like this following pressure principle and the positioning we had was really, really good at times. And then we, they had to defend low even though they were clearly the dominant side in terms of ball possession. Uh, but during the game, they had to defend low. Uh, so we need to be able to defend low in a, in, a, in a good manner. We need to be good on the ball in terms of building attacks because that creates the conditions for us to create chances. I think a massive thing is also not only focusing on the build-up play, but also focusing on what you actually. What is the the aim of the builder play? That's obviously to score goals for us, at least, because we are very vertical in nature. We wanna, as I said, if we need three passes to go from one box to the other, if those three passes are we control, we will use three. If we need fifty five, we will use fifty five. But then we need ideas when we get to the box at how we are gonna break down a team and which spaces we feel gives us good opportunities to to finish a goal from. From beneficial areas and i think kim is without doubt one of the best he's definitely the best coach i've worked with in in all phases of the game but in terms of just focusing on how he breaks down uh attacking play around the final third i think it's i i I think most people would struggle to find coaches everywhere anywhere who are better because he is incredible at organizing it in a way where it's still up to the player to make decisions but he provides a structure and and uh, ideas around. He he uses signals a lot. He's very inspired by by uh, the NFL in terms of attacking play. Like, so our players will always know if you move maybe the ball in in one space, then it's a possibility that the ball will be played into another space. And then it's it, the idea is that it helps players to predict what's going to happen because they do it in training, and and that's a big thing as well in all everything we do. That training the brain to predict what's going to happen on the pitch. Hmm. so i think we need to be good in the in the in possession phase we need to be good at build up we need to be good at attacking the box we need to be good in our high pressure we need to be good in our low low defending we have to be good in attacking transition and in defensive transition if we are going to have a chance at playing the style of football we want to play we cannot only focus on build up play and expect to be a good team because we're going to lose the ball and then if we are terrible in those phases then we're not going to get the ball back and we're going to concede yeah. goals so so uh, I think it's it's crucial that you're good in all the four phases and also in the different phases within the
0: phases. Does that make sense? As I said, I was impressed with that low block against Hammerby and you spoke about it on Twitter that when Hammerby would play backwards, you wouldn't really step up and press them because they would be able to play back inside then and that would create gaps. And it was actually something they, they do do really well. Because I remember I watched a game a few weeks back against Norchoping and it was something that Norchoping did pretty poorly when they were defending a low block. and. Hammerby would play that backwards pass, they'd step up and then Hammerby would go back inside and they they'd kill the the first line would be gone, the second line's gone, then you're just bearing down on the back line. Oh you just touching on that, Adam, quickly, uh, just because that's also something we changed then
1: for the game. Because normally you would see us go, if the ball is played backwards, we would go for the ball. Because
0: mm. it's a pressing trigger, yeah. We
1: are, yeah, we're yeah. really good at at like going from low. To maybe a mid block and then going to a high block i think we are very good at that we are extremely energetic and intense and we win a lot of balls back and and we are we are like that's a really strong side to our to our game but we knew like you said in this game that if we are not doing that like in unison or, or like if we miss it by a step they are really good at exploiting the spaces we leave uh so we and I think this, this is where I, I mentioned on Twitter that the credit goes to the players because it's, it's a big difference being as aggressive as you can be high up the pitch to then be quite, not passive, because if they try and play inside, you want it to be aggressive, but being uh, patient and waiting for the right moments. Okay, forcing them back, forcing them back, forcing them back. Okay, then the ball goes to the goalkeeper and then we become high. And that's, that's,
0: that sort of discipline was, was uh, you know, exemplary from the players. Just touching on that, actually, before we move on to a full on high block, when the opposition plays the ball backwards, usually and you guys would step up, do you press just as a you know against the ball as a structure? Or do you go for the man like when you're stepping up? Do your players spread out and go to the nearest ball option for the opposition, or how does it work? No, we are much more like I
1: think, uh. Like I, I heard someone say this uh, in a, in a Swedish podcast, and I, I thought it was really good. I, like sometimes I think terms can be difficult to use in terms of like especially defending. Mm-hmm. Like what is a um, man oriented like a marking man marking system, and what is more positional? Because I think you can do both or or different things in within the same within the same uh, structures. Like I said earlier, we had in one game we man marked uh, an opponent with one player. But everyone else were playing more yeah. like ball oriented. But when you when you were around the ball, like on the ball side, you might be almost man marking. Uh, so you use maybe three or four different defensive systems in one. Uh, and I think normally when we are low, or always when we are low, we play strictly ball orientated or classic sw- Swedish uh, sonal positional mm-hmm. defending where you just move. In, in regards to where your teammates are and where the ball is, and don't really pay attention to opponents except for in the box where we are more man marking, um uh, because we we feel that sometimes it's difficult when teams are good attacking wise. If you are in a zone and you give them time to finish on one touch, it's difficult to to block goals. So you have to be close. That, that's a just an idea we have. But otherwise, we are strictly positional and ball orientated in in the way we move around in our own half, uh, and then we. We are sometimes man orientated high up. Uh, sometimes we are maybe pressing with one player less. So we might use three forwards to press a back four. We might use two uh, strikers to press a back four and then try and press them inside. And then we are ready to go if they play out to the fullback. And how would you make, how would
0: you make up the, the numerical inferiority there? Would it be just cover cover shadow on say the outside yeah. fullback? If yeah.
1: Yeah, it would be pressing passing lanes mm-hmm. uh that, that's something we talk about pressing passing lanes and and then being ready that if if we like we one thing we used uh, against uh against our core was that we pressed with our two as you would call them wingers maybe uh we pressed inside with them against the center back kind of like liverpool have, have done a lot of times and then uh, we had our, our number nine dropping so it's basically a diamond pressing inside and then uh if they play in and out to the fullback, who would be would be you know free, then we have to be able to press that play with maybe a midfielder. If he if a midfielder is closer, we will go with a midfielder. If the fullback, if the open fullback goes really high, it might be easier for our our fullback to press that player, and then we might have a centre back moving across to play against the winger, for example. Uh, so that would be that would be very dependent on on what the opponent is good at. And what we feel we can use, if if a team tries to play long, we will normally press with as few players as possible because we need more to to uh, to cover for whoever goes into the duel mm-hmm. and and for people to to win second balls. Whereas if a team like Hamabi who we played at home, then we press them with like two players left at the at with their highest player. Uh, where we played basically two v two from from half the pitch uh, because we knew that they would try and play through all the time.
0: Um, so it's very it's very different. Perhaps you've already touched on it, but I just want to make sure. you you spoke on, on Twitter about a hybrid presence system. What does that mean in your mind? If, if Is it just a mix of zone man, man-oriented or man-oriented? Is...
1: Yeah, I, I think it's just uh, that we can use it hybrid in the sense, like, like I discussed with that knowledge shaping game where we use different, like we use all these ideas of defending within the same shape. And I think other teams like AC Milan do it really well uh where they are like man marking around the ball so there should always be if the ball is on one side every opponent should be marked so no one can receive in space uh we are not really we're not talking about that in a sort of general way we are as i said we've we've practiced a lot on our high defending in terms of of uh yeah all these different shapes do we press with three do we press towards a man we're always we're never playing man-marking in, in the sense that we follow opponents. It's more like it's orientate, orientated to maybe my first responsibility is pressing this player, but it's also about protecting as much space as possible. So normally we would press teams outside, and that would be something we've done in most games. So if I'm playing as a... As a if we defend in a... Let's call it 4-2-3-1, which we use a lot in, in terms of the defensive phase. Um, if I'm the right-sided attacking midfielder, and i'm my responsibility is pressing uh, uh, the left side and center back then my job is when he has the ball i have to press him and and uh, i have to press the passing lanes into midfield so i take away those options and i help my teammates to to adapt to my positioning but then if the ball would be switched across all the way to maybe the the right wing back of the opponent on the opposite side then i have to come in and, and defend space mm-hmm. in the center but I am still prepared to go and press my opponent. And then if someone drops into that space who was not initially the player I was supposed to play against, I am the closest player, so I will have to press him. So it's about preparing to press, and and then we can use all these different systems, and, and that's sort of the hybrid nature of it, that we can use different defensive ideas within the same pressing system, and then we can use different pressing systems from game to game based on what the opponent is good at. Hamabi and Kalmar trying to play out of everything all the time. Then we will press with almost almost going man. man uh, but still, as I said, being orientated, not marking, being oriented towards the player and still defending space. And then if the ball moves, I move with the ball to try and stay compact uh, and have access to my fellow teammates. And and maybe I can put myself in positions where I can defend against multiple opponents. So I'm ready to go left to press there but then i'm also ready to go right if the ball is supposed to be played there maybe i can trick an opponent in opening up a passing lane and then when the ball is played i step in and and win that ball Mm -hmm. uh so we talk about being active to play in an attacking sense and we talk about being active to defend in a defensive sense and then if we use marking or just covering positions and stuff like that it's that depends on the opponent and how many players we press with so the hybrid nature of it is basically that that it's very different and it's uh it's it's different from game to game. It's different within the game, what certain players do and, and what we
0: do in certain areas of the pitch, maybe. David, I have two more questions to ask, and I'm aware we, I, I did say it'd be an hour and I've gone over time, so I can, I can only apologise. First, well, firstly, in Sweden, I know there's a lot of pitches that use AstroTour for all weather, sorry, is a better term, but then there's maybe a few that still use natural grass. How does your preparation change for those? Or does that at all change? Do you still play your same way, does preparation change at all for it uh that's been actually
1: a lot of a big debate we uh we've played i think three t team, four teams on uh astro uh we've played uh obviously the game at the weekend was on an astro and it's probably the quickest pitch i've ever seen it's mm. so wet it's incredible and the ball just and the pitch is rapid like the if you pass the ball hard on a normal pitch it will go twice as hard on this one like it's it's so fast so it's the games there in stockholm are are incredibly fast-paced uh compared to when you play at different grass pitches around the country uh so i, I think it changes in in the sense that we try and train maybe on astro the day before because it's very different to the grass pitches we have who are not which are not the of the best quality, uh, which is it could be quite bouncy and obviously nothing bounces on an Astro pitch, uh, which is good. Uh, so so it might change just by preparing the pace like that. But in terms of the tactical approach, it doesn't change. We were told uh, early on that we uh, would struggle to press on Astro, on our artificial grass, compared to uh, on natural grass because it's easier to get into opponents on, on the natural grass. And I, I think that has some merit. Mm-hmm. I think we at home we have been incredible in in our pressing. I think we have been really good away from home as well, and it's been good to see that we could go and 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 press Norrköping and and Elfsborg and 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 Hammarby on on artificial grass and actually win the ball as many times high as yeah. we do on grass. Uh, so I I think it's it's beneficial for us actually as the as the footballing team we are and how we try and play in an attacking sense when the pitches are good so if we play on a really really good natural grass pitch that that will suit us if we play on a really good artificial pitch that will suit it possibly even more because it's even quicker and, and we we have a lot of players who are, have been uh, you know raised on artificial pitches so they are used so uh, I, I think we have managed to handle both sort of surfaces really well uh, and i have not seen any difference in our performances on the different pitches? Maybe that we, it's it's we get even more value from being so aggressive high up the pitch on grass because it's it is a little bit more difficult to play right. uh, when the pitches aren't aren't perfect as as an artificial pitches. But then then again, it's uh, I, actually this is just something I thought about now. But when we have pressed high away from home on Astro, normally the opponent has kicked the ball out for for uh, throw ins. So we're not getting as many like clear Mm -hmm. um, recoveries high up the pitch, and maybe that's I don't know if that has anything to do with the surface, but or if it's a tactical ploy. But that's something that I that I've actually thought about. That on grass we normally win the pitch the ball more by by duels, whereas on artificial it's more like we maybe stress people into making poor passes, for example. Yeah. The
0: final question I want to ask you is, and I asked this almost everyone that comes onto the podcast. I always get very interesting answers. So, René Mühlen's team was on a few weeks, got a former Sir Alex Ferguson assistant coach. And he said, I asked him his coaching inspirations. He said Alex Ferguson was one of course. He also said Johan Cruyff. Giovanni Costantino, the manager of uh, Casarano Calcio, was on last week. And he said the Colombia manager from 1990, which blew me away. But he's Italian. It genuinely uh, blew me away. So, I want to know your coaching inspirations you know they don't have to be still coaching as i said rain mullins said johann cruyff they can be from past or present managers or coaches that you've loved watching over the years Have you've learned the most from mm-hmm.
1: yeah uh i think there are so many uh on a on a personal level uh, i'm extremely inspired now by by my colleague my head coach kim i think i learn every day and it's a big challenge mm-hmm. for me because as an assistant, I can never know 100% what our style of play is and what our ideas are because they are in his head. So he sees everything and we might see the same clip and he will think about something we can change, which obviously I cannot predict before he does because it's, it's his way of playing. Yeah. Um, and then I learned so much from him and I and I I have the same sort of beliefs in how football should be played and I have played in a similar way with with other teams before but but uh, I learn every day of him. So he's, he's one right now. Uh, then uh, when I was younger, I I had the privilege of working with a coach called Andreas Pettersson, who was, uh, the he's now the Swedish under 21 assistant coach and has been for a, for a good few years. He's very good in the way he struck his training sessions. And, and I had him when I was, uh, when I was a player, so that was good. And same thing with, with, uh, with my colleague at Sylvia last and called Anes Mravac, who's now at Nord Sherping, uh, is also someone who who I uh, learn a lot from. Um, but then in, in what who people might actually know, I think uh, I grew up watching Manchester United a lot, so I've tried to take a lot of ideas from from the way those teams under Ferguson would play in terms of how they managed to create, uh, you know, pressure against teams by by keeping them pinned down. And it's probably a time before anyone talked about counter pressing and and rest defense and, and these sort of things, but how they manage to to push teams down and then actually keep them deep and continue attacking wave after wave. That's something I'm I'm really inspired with, and that's sort of where the ideas of of this uh, sort of aggressive countermarking come come from. Because that's and a weapon I think you can use to to keep teams pinned down and uh, to not give them time to breathe. So that 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 would be one. But in strictly tactical terms, I w- I would say a lot of Italian coaches like Maurizio Sarri and. I love watching uh, Marco Gianpaolo's uh, Sampdoria yeah. and Empoli sides um, 5 or 6 years ago. Uh I've I've watched obviously a lot of a lot of Guardiola's teams and and um uh, and uh, I love watching Jurgen Klopp's Dortmund when they uh, when they were at their heyday and then I mean I watch Bayern Munich every season. I think they're doing something new and something interesting and Nagisman is one yeah i look at a lot right now and i mean there's uh, there's so many i think uh, over the years but those those would probably be my main picks I, i'm probably forgetting someone now who's who i've really looked up to but but ferguson Klopp and guardiola and then obviously these uh, italian coaches like sarri and gianpaolo and, and those sort of sort of coaches and
0: nagasman would be would be the ones i think David, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really enjoyed this chat. And I wish you yourself, Kim and Varnima, all the best for the forthcoming season. Of course, you're you know, you guys are battling out every single week. You're doing fantastically. And if anyone's listening and you get an opportunity to watch Varnima, please do. Tactically, they are the most interesting team in the Elsvinskan. I can promise you that. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, that's that's nice to hear. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Brilliant. See you David. This has been the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I've been your host, Adam Scully, and you can find me on Twitter at AScully24. You can reach Toll Football Analysis on Twitter at Toll Analysis. We hope you enjoyed this podcast with David Cellini. A fascinating chat. I really learned a lot. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you join us next week. Goodbye for now.